Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. So we're going to be reading from the book of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament. We're going to read from chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. So Malachi chapter 1, verse 1, we read these words. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due to me? If I am a master, where is the respect due to me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? says the Lord Almighty. Now plead with God to be gracious to us with such offerings from your hands. Will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying, the Lord's table is defiled, and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff it. Sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty, when you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices. Should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. I'll just pray for Steve as he comes up. 
Father, as we look at these words printed on the page, they seem like any other words, but we believe that they are breathed out by you. We believe that they are living words. So we pray that this evening you would direct our hearts to your words, that through Steve you would open up your word to us and that he would speak truth into our hearts this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Charlie. Wonderful to be with you. What a wonderful Sunday. And uh, it's a great special day. A challenge in any relationship is to keep love alive. Any relationship needs to learn how to keep love alive. They talk about the seven-year itch in marriage. They talk about the honeymoon period being over. How do you keep a relationship vibrant? The book of Malachi was written to reignite Israel's relationship with their great lover, the creator God, who'd entered into a covenant with them on Mount Sinai. But the relationship had gone stale. It lacked vitality and meaning. In their recent history, in the 6th century, 100 years before Malachi writes, there'd been an exciting new start in the relationship between God and his people because God had brought them back from Babylon, back into the promised land. They'd rebuilt the altar and the temple to the Lord. There was worship again, the offering of sacrifices. It was a moment for the bride and the bridegroom to reunite after a period of separation. It was a time to renew marriage vows. It was a second honeymoon. Expectations and hopes were high in the relationship. But when Malachi writes 100 years later in the 5th century, 100 years have passed, and all that initial excitement and fervor had dissipated. It's half-hearted. It's lukewarm. The enthusiasm had gone. A relationship with God was very ordinary, very mundane, very unspectacular. And Israel discovered what every believer in the history of the world has, has discovered, that at some point, because life gets hard, you say to God, well, do you really love me? We had that in the testimonies, in their different way. It got tough. And the question is, well, does God really love me? And that's what the people are saying in their heads, in their hearts. Enter the prophet Malachi, whose name means my messenger. A messenger of reconciliation, a marriage counsellor, sent to patch things up. But as is often the case with marriage counselling, as both sides share their stories, sparks fly. The wounds, the hurts, the pains all come out. And in fact, that's exactly how Malachi, the book of Malachi, is structured. There are six debates, there are six disputes, there are six arguments between God and the people. And Malachi is the intermediary. Poor Malachi, not an easy job. We see the first dispute there. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? We see the second dispute there. It is the priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for my name? This is a heated debate between God and his people. Sparks are flying, but that was God's hope in sending the prophet Malachi, because the relationship lacked a little bit of passion. It had got stale. It needed to inject a bit of heat into it. Passion, love, commitment, honesty, integrity. God wanted that with his people. And so too for us today, and in the coming weeks, if you're with us as a church, as we study the book of Malachi, we're going to get to think, have we become half-hearted in our relationship with God? Have we fallen foul to compromise, apathy, going through the motions? And we get a chance, and today's a great chance, to say, Lord, revive us. 
stir us, provoke us out of half-heartedness. And if you're not a Christian here today, we could not be more chuffed you've come. We are just so delighted. Thanks for coming. I hope it's been a meaningful service for you. As we study Malachi chapter 1, you're going to see the difference between cultural Christianity, which is where you go to church and you do Christian things because you feel you have to, but your heart is not in it, and real Christianity, which is about a vibrant, life-transforming, captivating relationship with the creator of the universe through faith in Jesus Christ. So how do you revive a half-hearted relationship? First point, verses 2 to 5 there in the passage, says you must be assured of God's wholehearted love for you. God says in verse 2, I have loved you. And Israel responds, well, how have you loved us? So how does God reassure Israel that he has loved them? Well, he reminds them of how the relationship started. And he does a bit of a history lesson with them. He says to them there, in Genesis, uh, retelling a story of Genesis 25, of the, of the descendants of Abraham. There were two sons. There was Jacob, who became the father of Israel, and Esau, who became the father of Edom. They wrestled in Rebekah's womb, and they wrestled throughout the rest of their lives. Later, Jacob's name is changed to Israel. And God says to the people of Israel, even though Esau was older, I chose you to be mine. Remember, your, I chose you. And verse 2 and 3, it goes on. It says, was not Esau uh, uh, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now, the word hated there does not imply personal animosity. Rather, it's a decisive choice. It's a literary device that Malachi uses. Jesus later would use this literary device when he famously said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, he's in his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Jesus does not mean we have to have personal hatred and animosity towards our closest family and ourselves, but rather in the end we must choose who and what comes first in our lives. We must accept him as first and reject all others as second in that sense. So God did that with Jacob and Esau. He chose Jacob as his own. The Old Testament repeatedly says God chose Israel not because they were morally superior or impressive, but because, God's, because of God's unmerited love. Deuteronomy says this, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples. Israel wasn't that impressive. There were few. But it was because the Lord loved you. The prophet Ezekiel famously and graphically describes this relationship between God and the people in a moving marriage allegory in Ezekiel 16. Israel is described as an unwanted and despised baby, neither washed nor cared for, left exposed in the field. God came along and saw Israel kicking about in its own blood on the verge of death. God took Israel in, adopted Israel as a young baby girl and took care of her and helped her develop. God clothed Israel and covered her nakedness and made her beautiful and entered into a marriage covenant with Israel. And she not only became beautiful, she became powerful, she became the queen because she'd married the king. But the story continues. Israel started to trust in her beauty and wealth and rejected the one who gave her those things and went after other lovers and committed adultery. This is why Israel had been sent into Babylon as punishment. 
But this is where the plot thickens, and the sibling rivalry is rekindled. Not only did the Edomites gloat over the ruin of their younger brother Israel as they're sent into exile in Babylon, they actually helped the Babylon invaders. They acted as informants. They closed off escape routes, and they plundered the Israelites, their younger brother, when they had the chance. Edom seems to have fared quite well over the last hundred years. And so Israel was not sure. Do you love us? And if so, why is it so tough for us but so good for my brother? And God says in verses 3 and 4, and you can read them there, no judgment will come to Edom for their crimes too. Justice will come. In verse 5, you will see it with your own eyes. Great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. A lot of history to give you the context. What's going on here? Life in Israel was tough. It was mundane. There was nothing spectacular or dramatic. God wasn't showing up in signs and wonders. The honeymoon period after the exile was over, and Israel was starting to doubt God loved them. And God says to Israel, I never revoked my marriage vow. I never chose anyone else. I still have my eyes on you. I chose you once, and I choose you today. I have neither revoked my choice nor broken my covenant. Jacob I have loved, and I'll see justice is done to your brother. And so we need to hear that today, don't we? Afresh. God chose us, and he loves us. Maybe like Israel, you're saying, well, how do I know that, Steve? It sounds nice. But we don't look back to Genesis 25. We don't look back to Ezekiel 16 for our history to know how God loved us. It's already been quoted twice today. The Apostle Paul summed it up nicely in Ephesians 2. God saw us kicking about in our own blood, dead in our transgressions and our sins. No one to care for us, no one to rescue us. We were enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil. We were captives heading for destruction. But in his love, he took hold of us. When we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive in Christ. He gave us life, and he made us beauty, beautiful. And like Israel, he made us royalty. Paul says, he seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms through no work or merit of our own, but through grace alone. How did God make you beautiful? Martin Luther, riffing off Ezekiel 16, told a story of a king who marries a prostitute. Luther's allegory for the marriage of King Jesus with the wicked sinner. When they marry, the prostitute becomes by status a queen. It is not that she made her behavior queenly and so won the king's hand. She was and is a wicked harlot through and through. However, when the king made his marriage vow, her status changed. Thus, she is simultaneously a prostitute at heart and a queen by status. In the same way, Luther said that the sinner on accepting Christ's promise in the gospel are simultaneously a sinner and righteous before the God of all the earth. How does this joyful exchange take place where all the prostitute's sin is put on the king and all the king's glory is put on the prostitute? Where does that joyful exchange take place? On the cross. This is the history Israel never had the great God, the hound of heaven, the unrelenting lover, 
would show us once for, for all forever just how much he loved each one of us. He became the one soaked in blood, unwanted, despised, left exposed in an open field. He died an ugly and cruel death so we might live and be made beautiful. So no matter how mundane your life, no matter how unspectacular it can be, no matter how it goes for you when others seem to prosper and you seem to suffer like Israel had with their brother Esau. No matter whether your prayers get answered as you want, no matter how dire your straits, no matter how frustrated the desires of your hearts, no matter, no matter, no matter, we can never say to God, how have you loved us? We know he died for us. We know once for all, forever, that God loves us. He hasn't changed his mind, revoked his choice, or broken his covenant. Do you need to hear that afresh today? He chose you. He has his eyes on you. He died for you. Do you want to revive a relationship with Christ? Do you want to come into it for the first time? The great mistake is to think, I must try harder. Instead, you want to revive a relationship with Jesus here afresh. I love you. I chose you once. I chose you. I still choose you today. Allow the love of God shown in Jesus to fill your heart and mind. Before you do anything, hear him say those words to you. How do you revive a half-hearted relationship with God? Be assured of God's wholehearted love for you. And then in verses 6 to 14, respond with wholehearted love for God. Many times in my marriage to my wife, Leanne, we have realized that we were giving each other the dregs. We'd spent all our emotional and physical energy on other things, other people. So when it came to one another, we had nothing left to give each other but the dregs. Our marriage was not flourishing. It was surviving. We were not investing in our marriage. It was just going by on the minimum. Well, that was Israel's attitude to their God. The Old Testament patterns of worship required the Israelites to bring to the temple in Jerusalem uh, sac uh, sacrifices, animals without blemish, not the blind, the lame, or the sick. In other words, God didn't want the dregs. Offering a healthy animal without blemish was to do something, it was to offer something of value. It cost the worshiper. Offering blind, lame, sick animals didn't really cost the worshiper anything because those animals weren't valuable or fit for purpose. So true worship was shown by the willingness to counter financial cost. Integrity of heart in the worshipper was discerned by whether there was a willingness to offer anything of value. Rather than find a loophole that meant you could give God something pathetic and cleanse your conscience that you were doing your duty. It's a bit like me saying to my wife Leanne for our wedding anniversary that I'll cook her a nice meal and then I go and buy McDonald's and lay it on the table. Maffy might do that. I would never. No. Um, <laughs> that would be no expression of my love for my wife, nor would it honor our marriage. God calls Israel out of this half-hearted, hypocritical worship. He says in verse 6, they're treating him with contempt. He says in verse 7, their offerings are defiled. And worse, what does he say in verse 13? Do you see it? Do you see it? You say, what a burden. God sarcastically asks them in verses 6 to 8, if you were a servant, would you give your master the dregs? He says, if you were a son, would you give the father the dregs? If you were a citizen, would you give the civil ruler, the governor the dregs? You wouldn't dream of doing such things, and yet this is how you treat me, the God 
of all the earth, the one who entered into covenant with you. And so we too must examine our worship. Okay, we no longer go to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices because Jesus was the once for all sacrifice. He was the great high priest. He fulfilled all those Old Testament symbols and patterns. And Jesus said to a woman at a well, the Father doesn't seek worshippers that travel to a location. He seeks worshippers that worship in spirit and in truth. So what does it mean for us to reflect on true worship, giving God our all and our best? Let me suggest three things. Firstly, it means corporate worship. Isn't it easy to come to corporate worship on a Sunday like this with the same apathetic attitude that Israel was going to the temple in their day? So we must examine our approach to our Sunday gatherings. Have we fallen foul to familiarity as a cause for contempt? Do we take for granted the great privilege of gathering every Sunday, singing the songs, greeting brothers and sisters, hearing the sermon, or do we just come with apathetic hearts? And do we sometimes begrudge it and go, do you know what, it's a bit of a burden. It doesn't quite fit into my timetable. I've got a social... It's a bit of a burden sometimes. Of course, we must avoid legalism. We experience grace that relieves us from the duty of attendance. But we should also examine our hearts. How important is it to gather with God's people? Do we treasure it? Do we prioritize it? Does it fit into our city groups? Or do we come with a heart full of blemished animals, giving God the dregs when he can fit into our timetable? The issue was enhanced through COVID and online church, which really is the modern equivalent of blemished animals. Participating with little cost and no requirement to serve or engage or be held accountable, whilst assuring ourselves we still go to church. I think God would ask the same questions of verse 6 to 8. Is that how you treat other important relationships? You just stay online? No, be in person. That's where church really is. The writer to the Hebrews says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other more every day until the day approaches the day of judgment. Maybe you've given up a bit on corporate worship. Be provoked today by the Spirit. Secondly, personal worship. Though Jesus, like Malachi, speaks against empty and hypocritical private worship, he still assumes we'll do it. He famously says in the Sermon on the Mount, when you go into your room, close the door, pray to the Father who is unseen, and the Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Again, there are legalistic pitfalls everywhere that we must not fall into. This isn't about duty or merit or pride or dealing with guilt or proving we're a good Christian or any of that stuff. And of course, there are seasons of work and pressure, of pressure at work and pressure with family where we have to know God's grace for what we're able to do. But any relationship to flourish needs time, unhurried time, quality time. So we must prioritize our personal worship, of reading his word, of praying, of reflecting, of meditating. We must ask ourselves, are we giving God the honor and the time and the focus that he deserves, as, as verse 14 says, the, as the great king who one day will be feared amongst all nations? Or are we coming with the dregs? Allow the spirit today to kickstart you 
in personal worship. And if you don't know what that means, on our website many years ago, I wrote a blog called Prayer Getting Started. There are resources there. There's examples of how you might have 15 or 30 minutes in a day to get going in personal worship. And while I'm at it, personal worship feeds into family worship where we include the Bible and prayer and songs with our, in our marriages and in our homes. And we have a seminar next week that you're invited to. Personal worship, corporate worship, family worship, and what about, most importantly, a life of worship? Personal and private worship are fraudulent if our lives are not lived as an act of worship. When considering the great sacrifice of Jesus for us, the Apostle Paul would say to the church in Rome, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Yes, we should worship God on a Sunday. Yes, we should worship God in private. Yes, we should worship God in our marriages and in our families. But above all, our true and proper worship is a life lived as a sacrifice to God. We are the sacrifice. And we put ourselves each day on the altar and say to God, may my life be a sweet-smelling offering to you. By the words that I say, the thoughts that I have, the decisions I make, the motives of my heart, may every part of my life be given over to you. I want to be an offering to you. And this includes, yes, financial giving, not what I have left over, but considered sacrificial, proportional, financial giving that costs us, and we feel the pinch. We're not giving God the leftovers and the dregs. We're thinking it through. Israel was half-hearted because God wasn't doing anything spectacular in their midst. The honeymoon period was over, and yet God was calling them to a deeper, more mature relationship with him that doesn't rely on continuous romance and excitement but relies on lives fully lived in commitment to one another. God was drawing them deeper, and he's doing that today. The world would say a relationship always has to be exciting. Life always has to be exciting. You know, the Christian life, it has its highs. There's moments of great excitement, but it's actually fairly straightforward. It's personal worship, it's corporate worship, and it's a life of worship. It's not all dramatic. It's faithfulness to God every day and finding joy in God, even in the mundane moments. So God is calling us to maturity, to shake us out of half-hearted apathy. First, before we do anything, hear the words, I love you and I want you as my own. Let God's love by the Spirit fill your heart afresh and then out of sheer joy, an overflowing gratitude, respond to God with your personal worship, corporate worship, and a life of worship. To those getting baptized today, years later, God would send another Malachi in the first century, the Apostle John, not to Israel, but to seven churches scattered throughout Asia Minor. They'd also become half-hearted, and God wanted to win them back. Baptism's a wonderful moment in one's relationship with God. But let's lead, read these words again. It says, he says to uh, the church in Ephesus, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. So we want to help those three, Laura and uh, Caitlin and Hannah. We want to help you not fall from the first love, 
but continue to the end of your days. But to all of us, let's hear those famous words to another church that John wrote to, a compromised church. He says to the church at Laodicea, you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with that person and they with me. God wants relationship. He wants our hearts. He wants our whole lives. And so if you're here today and you're not a believer, or you know, do you know what? I fit into that cultural Christianity bracket. I sometimes go to church. I call myself a Christian, but it's very half-hearted. It's very much on my terms. I might give God the dregs. Why has God brought you here today? To hear three wonderful stories, to see three people get baptized, to hear a sermon on Malachi 1. He says, I want, you, I want all of you. I want your whole life. And I want it to be vibrant, even in the mundane, even in the unspectacular. There's a call to personal relationship. So let's take a moment before we sing our final song to be silent and consider our own relationship with God. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great love you have for each of us that was shown ultimately in your Son coming to earth for us. We, we, we hear your voice afresh to each of us today and I pray everyone in this room would hear it afresh that you love us and that you've chosen us and you want us as your own. And that even though life can be tough and even though we have upsets and we have things that go wrong and even though other people's lives seem to prosper when ours don't, that doesn't change your great love for us. Fill us afresh with that love today. And I pray for anyone here who doesn't know, has never experienced that love, that you'd show them that you died for them and you want a relationship with them and you knock at the door of their hearts and you're asking to come in. And I pray they'd, even now, just let you in put their trust in you and for all of us particularly those of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus show us where we are apathetic show us where we are going through the motions we long to be those that are fully committed to you our whole lives given over as an act of worship and so revive us we kindle our love wake us up out of our apathy and may our worship even in normal days be vibrant because we know you the living God We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.